and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. They tend to be art house and world cinema. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth and deeply personal discussion of films. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. On today's episode, I talk in-depth about Lynn Lippman's 1983 film Testament. It's about how a mother and her children in a California town survive the aftermath of a nuclear bombing. We don't know who dropped the bombs, what has happened in the rest of the country, and we're not provided any political details. Instead, the film is solely about this family and how they confront the gradual and horrifying deterioration of their bodies due to radiation poisoning and how they witness the breakdown of society. Without a doubt, This is the most terrifying film I have ever seen in my life. By the end of this film, I was devastated and wrecked. You will never forget this film, and you will never get it out of your system. I talk all about the film in this episode. I talk about how it's about grief and loss, because there is a great deal of that in the film. I talk about what makes this film so unique, so deeply intimate, and deeply emotional. And I also talk about watching this film at two different times, really in history. I watched it first in early 2019, and then I watched it a second time for this episode during the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020. And I talk about the difference in watching the film at those different times, because there's a huge difference. And I think this film hit me even harder when I watched it during this pandemic. So I talk about that as well. There are spoilers in this episode. If you'd like to support the work I'm doing, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. You can access extra episodes, vote in polls, and much more. Go to patreon.com slash herheadinfilms for more information. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash herheadinfilms. You can also review the podcast on iTunes. Please give me five stars. I love your reviews. Tell your friends and followers about Her Head and Films, or you could follow me on social media and interact with me on there in a positive way. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr, and Twitter. There are links to all my social media accounts in the show notes of each episode, so I won't go on any longer. Here's my episode all about Lynn Lippman's terrifying 1983 film, Testament. Before I get into my film analysis, I just wanted to give you some details about the making of the film, how the film came to be. I especially like to do this for films that are not as well known or that might be under the radar. I think Testament is one of those films that I don't hear a lot of people talk about. I wish I could remember why I first watched it. I watched it in January of 2019. I'm not exactly sure how I heard about it or why it interested me because I am not somebody that normally watches the genre that this film would be part of. I would describe it 
as a disaster film perhaps. I'm not quite sure how you categorize the film because it's not science fiction even though when it was released it got a lot of attention from science fiction people. It's not your typical disaster film but that's where I would place it. So I don't tend to watch films like that. They just they don't interest me. I'm not drawn to them. I'm not really drawn to action films in general and I would I would think of those films more as like action films a bit or just like they tend to be like the blockbuster films. I have enough that I'm going through in my life. <laughs> I don't like to watch films about disaster whether it's climate change or aliens or zombies or anything like that. In general, I am not attracted to even horror films or scary films. Now, I don't mind suspenseful type films like thrillers or psychological thrillers. Those are fine. I used to watch those a lot when I was a kid. I loved like erotic 90s thrillers when I was younger. I don't know what that says about me, but I would watch a lot of that stuff like in the 90s when I was growing up and they usually played them on cable. Films like Fatal Attraction or something like that. That's what I'm talking about with like a psychological thriller or something very suspenseful. But I don't tend to watch horror films or scary films. So I'm not even sure why I watched Testament. Maybe it was the description. Maybe it was an image. It must have been something like that. And I do think that it's good to go outside of your comfort zone. I, I tend to get into my little comfort zone with films and I'm maybe not as adventurous as I should be. I wouldn't call myself a snob or anything like that. I don't conceive of myself that way. I don't have a problem with popular films or blockbuster films. A lot of them just don't interest me. But when I was growing up, I watched all kinds of uh, commercially successful films, whether they were the films of Nora Ephron or Nancy Myers. I loved the romantic comedy genre, especially in the 90s and the early 2000s. I think we got some amazing films under that genre, I guess you would call it. I grew up on things like that. I loved Titanic. I saw that in the movie theater when it came out when I was a kid. So I'm certainly not some kind of film snob and I don't put those films down and I even on occasion have covered more commercial films or even TV movies. I was obsessed with made-for-TV movies in the 1990s. I still watch them and I still love them a lot. So I watch all kinds of stuff but when it comes to like horror or action or disaster films I tend to not go in that direction. So for me watching Testament for the first time at least before I really knew what it was, it was me definitely stepping out of my comfort zone. And I wasn't sure what the film would be like or how I would connect to it or not connect to it. So I was very surprised with what I saw that first time. A film that is so intimate and so emotional and feels very personal to me as well. And at the end of the film, Lipman, Lynn Lipman, she dedicates the film 
to her family. I, I felt like the film was personal. I loved how it focused on a family. I love how it focused on just these few people going through a nuclear disaster, a nuclear holocaust, if you will. I, I was not expecting the emotional impact of this film at all, especially for it to be seen as like a nuclear disaster film. It surprised me. It stunned me. It has stayed with me ever since I saw it. Uh, back in January 2019. That's why I wanted to cover it. I actually had plans to cover it in 2019, later in the year, but I had a lot going on in my life. My dog had some health issues and I had to go on hiatus with the podcast. So I didn't get to talk about it then. And looking back, I'm actually glad that I'm covering the film now because I think that it has very deep resonance with what we are going through with the COVID-19 pandemic. And I could not have known that in 2019 because the pandemic didn't start until early 2020 around, around really the lockdown and the quarantine stuff started in March. But we started to get news about COVID-19 and this virus that was spreading around the world, probably more like in February. So 2020 has been an intense year. And for me, watching the film with the pandemic going on gave me a totally different appreciation for the film, a different viewpoint and perspective on it. I connected to it in a very different way. And so as I go forward with this episode, and I'll talk about this more later in my film analysis, for me, the two strands that are going to be with this episode are the pandemic and my own personal connection to the film. I really want to focus on how it looks at grief. That was something that deeply moved me about this film when I watched it in 2019 was the way it looked at grief and loss and mourning. And that is a theme that's very intense in my own life because I lost my father when I was a teenager and it was a really devastating loss for me. And at first I wasn't sure if I wanted to talk about it in this episode. I feel like I talk about it too much and I worry that I talk about it too much and I've started to get self-conscious about it and I'm not sure why. I mean, not a lot of people listen to this podcast and I don't know why I would care (laughs) that it would bother anybody or I don't know. Lately, I've just felt kind of self-conscious with the podcast for some reason or with social media and stuff like that. I'm not sure where that's coming from. This episode will be grounded in my personal reaction to the film in 2019 with, with grief and loss being really central for me, but then I'm gonna merge that with my reaction to the film in 2020 with a second viewing during a pandemic that gives the film a totally different relevance and resonance for me. That if I had only covered the film in 2019 before this pandemic, I would not have noticed the things that I noticed and I don't think it would have hit me in quite the same way. So I'll talk about that more in my film analysis, but just off the bat, I want to let you know those will probably be some of the main subjects on top of just talking about this film. And this is 
an extraordinary film, I think, especially for the disaster genre or whatever. I I don't even like necessarily categorizing films. I don't know how at times. I do think there are films where there's not neat boxes that you can put it in and there are not neat categories that you can fit a film into and that's totally fine. And there are directors and there are films that defy our attempts to categorize them or define them very neatly. And sometimes those are the most enriching, fascinating, important films of our lives are the ones where we don't even know what to make of it. So I want to give some information about the making of the film, how it came to be, because like I said, this is not a really well-known film. I feel like many of you listening to me, I hope that some of you got inspired to watch the film because I'm focusing on it. That's all I can hope for with this podcast and with these episodes is that when I choose certain films, particularly ones that are a bit obscure and that are not as well-known, is that you will seek those films out for yourself and maybe watch them because I talked about them. I absolutely love that aspect of not just this podcast, but of social media, of the internet, of this ability to influence other people. Of course, that influence can be used in a negative way, right? Like when we see disinformation or misinformation spreading. But I like to use my platform and my influence in a positive way, which is to expose people to films they might not have normally watched. I love that. And I really like having a positive impact on other people. And I was thinking about this recently. What I also love is that maybe you know, years from now, I mean, say you watch Testament because I talk about it. Say you watch different films that I've covered on this podcast, like The Night of the Hunter or Landscape in the Mist or The Tree of Life. Say you end up watching those films because I choose to talk about them and you get interested in them. I love the idea that years from now, when you're thinking about that film and say it had a big impact on you and it affected you. I love the idea that when you think of the film, you might also think of me and that I will in some small way have touched your life or affected your life. And it's almost a way I feel like that maybe I'll be remembered. I will live in somebody's memory. I mean, I think that's beautiful. And I and I thought about that recently and it moves me to think that I might be that for some of you. That in the future, when you're thinking about a film, you'll think of me too. And I think to be thought of is a beautiful thing. So I hope that I have that effect on your life in a really positive way. And that's all I can really hope for when I do these episodes. So I will stop babbling and talk about this film. Y'all know that I go on tangents, okay? You know that I do. So Testament came out in 1983 and it was released around the same time as two other films that also focused on nuclear disaster. Those two other films were a TV film called The Day After and another film called Threads. This was the time of the Cold War in the 1980s. It it started well before the 1980s, but we were in the Cold War. This Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union, and people were on edge, and they were worried about potential nuclear annihilation. That was a fear that people lived with. That was an anxiety that people lived with at that time, and all three of those films were released around the same time. Testament came out a little bit before the day after, but the day after had a big impact from what I read. It even affected Ronald Reagan. It changed some of his policies. It had 
had a big impact on people. Now, Testament is not as well known, even though it was released around the same time. And I would I would imagine that perhaps the day after sort of overshadowed Testament. You know, when you have one particular film about a subject and it becomes really big, people tend to forget the other film that might have come out around the same time about the same subject. So I do think that it got that the day after overshadowed Testament a bit. This was Lynn Lippman's first feature film. She had made some documentaries before this point. She had worked in documentaries for a few decades, I think, and she did win an Oscar for one of her short documentaries. So she was somewhat established, and this was the first time that she went into a fictional narrative feature film and not a documentary. How the film came to be was that Lynn Lippman read the short story that the film is based on and that short story was published in Miss Magazine in the early 1980s. I think it was 1981. The original short story was called The Last Testament and it was written by a woman named Carol Amen. She claimed that she wrote the story in the middle of the night after she woke up with a vision and that it just all poured out of her. She woke up with this vision of this story and she wrote it immediately. And it's only a few pages. It's not a very long story and it's a short story told in the form of diary entries by the mother Carol. Those diary entries are incorporated into the film. I read the short story myself. I found it online. I'll link it in the show notes of this episode. I'll link all the research that I did. I read several interviews that Lynn Lippman did. I read a few reviews of the film. I try not to read too many reviews of films because I just want to share my own thoughts and I don't want to um, unconsciously you know, be influenced by other people. But she did a few interviews that I was able to find. Carol A. Min wrote it in one night and it's a good short story. It's it's not a bad short story by any means. It's not necessarily uh, the best writing that I've ever read, but the story is there. The skeleton of the of what you see in the film is absolutely there and there are uh, many things in the short story that are reproduced in the film. And then because it's such a short story, only a few pages, they obviously added things to it. I think they did a good job with that. But the short short story itself is just told in these short diary entries by the mother who's talking about things that are happening day after day as basically her world falls apart and the most horrific thing that could befall a person happens to her where she's basically watching her family die. She has lost just about everything. So it's it's a powerful idea for a short story. And I think the film really did a great job taking that original source material and building it into this film. Like, it's pretty extraordinary. John Sacret Young, I hope I'm saying his name right, wrote the script for the movie. So he took that short story and expanded it into a script. And he would actually go on to produce the TV series, The West Wing. Lynn Lippman, after she read the short story in Miss Magazine, she called up Carol Amen and got the rights to the story for $1,500. That's how she was able to make it. There were actually several people who wanted to option that short story and make it into a film. But because Lynn Lippman had gotten the rights from 
Carroll, she was able to do it. The film was produced by American Playhouse, and it was also broadcast on PBS later on. Jane Alexander plays the mother in the film, Carol Weatherly. And Jane Alexander was cast in the film because Lippmann and her had attended Sarah Lawrence together. So there was a a familiarity there and they knew each other. But Jane Alexander also had a personal connection to the material because she was involved in a lot of anti-nuclear activism. Both Lippmann and Alexander had very vivid nightmares just on their own, just in their personal lives about nuclear disaster and the dreams involved like how it affected their children. So the subject itself seems like it was also just really close to their heart. It was something they cared about and it was something that preoccupied them. These fears about nuclear annihilation and what could happen to them, what could happen to their families. There was not a lot of research that Lippmann could do for the film because she was really filming something that had not really happened, at least not in America. She did interview some Hiroshima maidens, as they were called. These were victims of the Hiroshima bombing. I'll talk about that in a minute. And she considered including their testimonies in the film, but she decided against it. According to Wikipedia, Hiroshima maidens were, quote, a group of 25 Japanese women who were school-age girls when they were seriously disfigured as a result of the thermal flash of the fission bomb dropped on Hiroshima on the morning of August 6, 1945. They subsequently went on a highly publicized journey to get reconstructive surgery in the U.S. in 1955, I had never heard of these women before until I was doing my research. There is even a 1988 film about one of these Hiroshima maidens, and the film is called called Hiroshima Maiden. And it's about a young girl who comes to America, a a Japanese girl who, you know, was disfigured by the bomb. She comes to America to get reconstructive surgery, I think. And she stays with an American family. It's a very short film. It's like an hour. And I kid you not, I had been searching for this film for years. I actually saw this film when I was a child in school. It was either elementary school or middle school. And I had thought about it many times in the years since. I'm 31. So I grew up in the 90s and the early 2000s. We were shown this film in school. I remembered things about it, but I could not figure out the film itself, what the title was, because the way I remembered it, I knew it was set in the 19... I thought it was set in the 1980s, but the there was a Hiroshima survivor in it. So it never made sense to me because I was like, Hiroshima happened in the 1940s. Why am I thinking of the 1980s, right? Like I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't remember certain actors. I remembered one actor from it, but then when I looked through his filmography recently, before I did this research and found out what the film was, I couldn't see the film in his filmography. So I was just totally confused, but I always remembered this film. And I think it's probably the reason why I've been interested in Hiroshima and the atomic bombings. I I saw it when I was very, very young. And so when I was doing my research for this film and the Hiroshima maidens, and then I saw on Wikipedia that there was a film about it. So then I go to YouTube and I'm looking for the film. I start the film and there's, and boom, there's the actor that I remember. There's the things that I remember about the film. And it was like, I can't explain it to you. It was like this connection with my childhood 
childhood. You know when you remember things from your childhood, a book or a film that you saw in school but you cannot remember the name of it. You, you So it's like you can't go seek it out. You can't go watch it again or read that book again. It's like forever lost to you and it just lives in your memory. And sometimes you're like, am I even remembering it right? Like, did this even exist? Did this even happen? I knew I had seen a film about a girl who survived Hiroshima, but I just couldn't put it together. And then there I find it. And it was right in front of me on YouTube. It was just amazing. I don't know if any of you have had similar experiences where you're trying to remember something from your childhood and you just can't get it. And that's what happened for me. I could not believe that in the process of my research for this film that I discovered this other film that had just stayed with me for years and years. Like I really wanted to find it again. I wanted to know about this film because I remembered it so vividly. So I know I'm going on about it, but it was just an amazing moment where I was like, it did exist. I did remember it correctly. I was just totally confused about about certain um, things about it. And when I was reading the comments on the film on YouTube, it turns out that I'm not the only like kid who saw it. This film was um, shown quite a bit in schools, it sounds like, in the 1980s and the 1990s. And so a lot of kids who are like my age now in their 30s remember watching this film. So I've talked a bit more about Hiroshima in my episode about uh, Hiroshima Mon Amour. I do have that episode. It's an earlier episode of mine. I have not listened to it in a long time. I don't know what the quality is. I sometimes wish that I could go back and re-record some of of my earlier episodes because I just was in the early stages of the podcast and I didn't do as much research back in those days because not a lot of people were listening. Not that that many people listen now. I just wasn't maybe as articulate as I wanted to be in those early episodes and I didn't have as much confidence in myself and just different things. But now I wish I could re-record some of that. But I do have an episode about Hiroshima Mana Moore. So she did not include the testimony of the Hiroshima maidens, but she did sort of have a nod to those atomic bombings that the U.S. did in Hiroshima and Nagasaki in the character that she has in the film who's named Hiroshi. And he does appear to be Japanese. He also has Down syndrome. And he is the son of the man who owns the gas station. I think his name is Mike. And so that is sort of maybe some would say heavy-handed. And Lynn Lippman said as much. She, she said it was a bit heavy-handed herself. But it's a bit of a nod, right, to the fact that the only country that has dropped atomic bombs is the United States. And we did that. And we carry the responsibility of that. I still don't think that we as a country have faced it and have acknowledged the horror that we unleashed. I mean, I'm one of those people who was staunchly against us dropping those bombs. And I am, you know, horrified by what we did to the Japanese people. When I see images of the victims and footage of the victims, it just horrifies me. It makes me feel ashamed. It makes me feel mad. It makes me feel just appalled at what we did and the suffering that we inflicted on the Japanese people. I mean, everything changed that day. 
Everything changed with those two bombs. The world was never the same after that. I mean, it's so horrific when you really stop to think about it. It's just absolutely on another level. So the people in this film are going through radiation poisoning and stuff like that. That happened in Japan. You know, people died of people died instantly from the bombs and then they died later from radiation poisoning, cancer, I believe. There were a lot of victims from those bombs. And of course the entire world didn't end that day. But for the people who were affected and who were disfigured, the world certainly changed, right? Some of what we see in this film did happen to actual people in real life, even though technically it's a disaster film and it's more in the realm of imagination and something that hasn't happened before because I had the sense that these were like the last people on earth like the last people left. Littman couldn't do a lot of research for the film like I said um, but she did sort of call up some local agencies like government agencies and asked them like what would you do? What, what are we supposed to do if a nuclear bomb was dropped? And she found out that there was not much preparation on the Fed or local level for the possible event of a nuclear attack. She found out that people would basically be on their own the way that they are in the film. And she was pretty shocked by that. And I I was as well. But I don't know if it's that surprising, really. Even now, when natural disasters happen, people are pretty much on their own in this country. So despite the darkness of this film, it's such a dark film. It's The first part is not dark, and the middle part is not very dark, but the last 30 minutes are so relentless and so brutal. I'm I'm worried a bit about how I'm going to talk about the film because it just, it left me raw and it left me really devastated. I just finished it like maybe an hour ago and those final 30 minutes, and I'll talk more about this, I had to take breaks. I had to take like a pop music break. <laughs> like seriously, I was over here listening to pop music because I needed a break from this. I was over here listening to Lisa Stansfield's All Around the World. Like that's what I needed. I needed a release. <laughs> I, I needed my pop music to take me out of the horror of this film. The last 30 minutes are just devastating and I'll talk about that. I This is going to be a tough episode, honestly. And I do wonder those of you who are listening, you know, if you just watched the film, you know, and you're listening to my episode. Now I wonder, it leaves you raw. Like I feel really raw right now. Lynn Lippman said that her main influence for the film was a film called War Game by Peter Watkins. And it was from 1965. Apparently this is a pretty famous film and it is about a nuclear attack. And I think it's set in England. It had a big effect on the people who saw it. I wasn't able to find it online to look at it or anything like that. But it sounds like it was a pretty important film to some people and had like a really big effect on people. Interestingly, Lippman wanted Julie Christie to play the role of Carol, the mother. But Julie declined. At one point, Susan Sarandon was even considered, but eventually she did go with Jane Alexander, and I think that was the right decision. So that is some information about the making of this film. I think it's very interesting, and so now I will get into my full film analysis.
I don't know how I'm going to talk about this film. (laughs) I'm recording this episode right after watching it, like I said, which I like to do. Sometimes I do that. Sometimes I'll let a film sit for a little while or I'll try to process it. But some films I want to talk about immediately because I just want to like talk about it when I'm in the emotions of it. I'm in my feelings as they say. (laughs) I am in my feelings when it comes to this film. I was thinking about it as I was watching it like especially in the last part of it. I feel like there are three parts to the film. There's the first 20 minutes that is before the nuclear disaster, the the before the bombs drop. There's about 40 minutes in the middle where you're in the after. You're in the um, the aftermath of these bombs. And you're in this community that is adjusting and trying to figure out how to survive the world now. The, there's still food. There's still gas. Life hasn't totally fallen apart and hasn't completely unraveled. And then there's the last 30 minutes that are relentless and brutal and bleak and heartbreaking and devastating. And I felt gutted by the film. As I was watching it for the second time, I was I was in sort of the first 30, 40 minutes. And I was like, I remember this being darker. I was thinking to myself, I was like, I I remember this differently. And then I got to those last 30 minutes and I was like, yep, this is what I remembered. I remembered the devastation of this film and what it did to me. And it absolutely wrecked me this second time. I'm not going to lie to you. I wonder if this is one of those films where you either have a really intense emotional reaction to it or you just write it off and you just think it's stupid or something. I wonder if there's a polarizing response to it. I don't know, but I know for me it was just devastating and I'm going to talk about that. But like I said, I think a few of the threads are going to be grief and also the the COVID-19 pandemic. And I say that just to let you know, that's why I said it earlier, because some people may not want to hear about that. And I understand we need spaces of escape. And I have really been trying in particular on social media, like my Twitter, my Instagram, my Facebook. I'm, I don't do Facebook a lot, but when I am on there, I've been trying to use my social media spaces with her head in films to really try to create spaces of escape for people and spaces of, and I tweeted about this, spaces of peace and beauty, refuge and repair, because I really deeply believe that we need spaces away from what is happening, away from politics that are so toxic and away from the pandemic news and the doom scrolling and all of that. I do the doom scrolling scrolling too. You're you're not alone if you do that. I I do it like at night usually for about a few minutes and then it becomes too much for me. So some people don't want to hear about it and I, I totally understand that but it's in my life right now. It is happening. It has changed the way I see everything. It has changed the way I feel about things. Going through this pandemic for almost 
10 months at this point. I mean, I'm recording this in September of 2020 and this episode is going to be available in October of 2020. I decided to do this film for like a Halloween month because in October I always try to do not necessarily horror films, but maybe like frightening films or films that I find really scary. So Testament doesn't really fit into the horror genre, but to me it is the most terrifying film that I've ever seen. And I don't say that lightly. I may change that one day when I watch something else and I'll say no, this was the most terrifying film, but Testament is the most terrifying film I have ever seen in my life. And I'm gonna be that serious. I'm gonna make that declaration right now to you. That is how much this film affected me. It affected me on such a deep level and the terror that it gave me. I'm going to try to put it into words for this episode and I don't know how I'm going to (laughs) do. I don't know how I'm going to accomplish that. In a recent episode, I talked about Charles Lawton's The Night of the Hunter and I said that it was one of the most terrifying films that I've ever seen. This is the one. (laughs) This is it. And Watching it for a second time cemented that. I don't know if I'll watch this film again. It's one of those films. I don't know. I've watched it twice now. I don't know if I'll watch it for a third time. It's not, I don't, I don't know. I really don't know. It's also one of the most devastating films I've ever seen. Like I said, I was so emotionally affected by it that I'm not sure how I'll convey it and communicate what this film did to me. After I watched it just about an hour or two ago, I went and I hugged my mom after I watched this film. I just wanted to hold her and touch her and hug her. And I wonder if it has that effect on other viewers where you want to take the people that you love and you want to take them in your arms and hold them close and you want to tell them how much you love them. And the pandemic in general has made me feel that vulnerability and that exposure and that fear. I just wanted to go hug my mom. I just wanted to tell her how much I loved her. So that's what I did after I watched this film. We're already very close. I live with my mom. She's my life and my soulmate and the love of my life. And I've always been very, very close to my mom, particularly after my father died when I was 16. And I've talked about this at length on the podcast. He died when I was 16. It happened in 2006. It was a life-changing event. It was catastrophic. It led to so much in my life. It led to severe depression, severe anxiety, agoraphobia that I still struggle with, which for me manifests as just difficulty in going out in the world, difficulty leaving my house, difficulty coping out in the world and functioning. It's something that I struggle with even now. Something I've gone through for over a decade at this point. I'm pretty open about it and I'm open about it in case somebody's listening who is going through something similar. Maybe somebody's listening who's lost a parent. Maybe somebody's listening who has depression, who has anxiety, perhaps has agoraphobia. Who knows? I don't know who listens to these episodes, but I talk about these things because I want to share my story and I want to try to make people feel a little less alone and make them feel like somebody else understands and somebody else is going through similar things. Or I want to try to put your own feelings into language, right? Maybe some of the stuff that I share about my feelings are things that you also feel. 
that's what I'm trying to do here. That's really important to me. The, the death of my father was just catastrophic and I'm 31 now and the thing about this pandemic is that it has really led me to take a really hard look at myself and about and to look at my life over the past decade or more and to think about what I've been through to try to make changes and to I don't know how to talk about this because it's something that I'm going through I really don't want the next decade to be like the last decade I think that's what I'm trying to say. I've been robbed of so much and my life has been really hard and painful for over a decade and I have isolated myself from people. I don't have friends in my real life. I don't have family. I moved a few years ago from the state where I lived my entire life for like 26 years and where my family lived and I don't live near any family anymore. I live in a completely different state from them. And so I don't have any support system. You know, I'm 31 years old and I don't have a lot to show for my life. I don't have connections with people. I don't have really deep friendships. I don't have like a deep love with somebody. I feel like this deprivation about my life. The last decade or so, I've just really hidden away from the world and avoided people and isolated myself, recoiled and retreated into myself. I'm alone, very, very alone in the world, deeply, deeply alone. I've just turned away from people and I turned away from the world. I don't want to do that anymore. Like I want to have a better life. I want, I want more. I want so much more, but it's hard. Like, I don't know how I'm going to make that happen. I don't know because I have anxiety. I have depression and I have all these things and I don't know what to do about them. You know, it's like they're there. I have it. I don't know what to do. And it's just destroyed my life. I've been in a lot of pain for such a long time. And I also deal with physical health issues as well that has affected my life. So, you know, being disabled and you know, not having a body that works properly has also been a, a problem in my life. So I don't know. I just, <laughs> I have a lot that I want to change, a lot that I want to do. I just want my life to be better. That's all I can say right now. And I've been trying to like face the trauma that I've been through. I've been trying to do a lot of work on myself to feel better about myself, to have more confidence, to love myself, to not drown in the self-hatred and the shame that I have felt for so long to face the things that have happened to me and to cope with them better. I'm a very sort of self-destructive person in a way and I've been trying to get away from that self-destruction and that self-hatred that I've done for many many years. That's that's something that the pandemic has has done is just made me reevaluate my entire life and how have I come to 31 years of age and I am this alone and what can I do to change it how can I connect with people why can't I connect with people I mean that is like the question that I ask myself why am I this alone because I don't think I deserve to be alone I don't think that I deserve to not have love and to not have connection and so I'm like what can I do to make that happen? I'm just working through a lot of stuff at the way I see myself, the way I see other people, trying to open 
myself back up to the world, to not be so fearful of the world and fearful of other people. There's just a lot that I'm going through. But I know that was a tangent. This pandemic has changed me. It has absolutely changed me. I have the feeling it's probably done that for a lot of other people too. It's just been, it's been a year. 2020 has been a year. A lot has happened in my life, both with the pandemic and just personally. And um, so back to the film, this film was just deeply devastating. And Lynn Lipman said in an interview that it's a film that traumatizes people. And I think she's right. And Roger Ebert wrote a really good review of the film, I think. And he said, quote, Testament may be the first movie in a long time that will make you cry. It made me cry. And seeing it again for the second time, knowing everything that would happen, anticipating each scene before it came, I was affected just as deeply, unquote. And I totally agree with him that even though I knew what was going to happen in the film, I was still deeply emotionally affected by it. The story is so spare and ordinary and intimate. And that's what makes it frightening, is that you can imagine it happening to you in your neighborhood. You can see your life in these characters. I think that with some films about disasters, there's a lot of special effects, right? And I think that special effects can create this distance between the audience and the film. It can take you out of everyday reality. Well, this film takes you right into reality, and there are no special effects. There, There is no grand thing thing that happens. There's just a big flash of light and then people start to die. It takes you into reality. It doesn't take you out of it. And like I said, in this episode, I will talk about the pandemic and then also talk about grief. If there is any film that has resonance during this pandemic, it is this one. And several writers this year have revisited this film and they've seen those parallels and it's impossible not to. And I will link those articles in the show notes of the episode. There was one in Vanity Fair and there was another one in the Los Angeles Review of Books of two writers who were talking about the film this year at once the pandemic started. So there are a lot of people who see that resonance as well and see the way this film connects to what we're going through. And I really want to emphasize the difference in watching this film before the pandemic and after it. Before the pandemic, something like what occurs in this film seemed so remote and inconceivable to me. Now it feels like a warning, not necessarily about nuclear annihilation, but about the breakdown of society in response to an out of control virus or even climate change. Climate change definitely comes to mind as well. Our government has shown itself uninterested in preventing disaster and unwilling to assist us when that disaster actually happens. So that's what I see with this film is the thing is, is that it was about about nuclear annihilation. It was about a nuclear holocaust, a nuclear attack. But you could replace that with anything. You could replace it with a pandemic, right? You could replace it with climate change, with things that are happening around the world that are putting people in very vulnerable situations. Like there are really terrible wildfires on the West Coast right now as I record this. And people have died from it. Dozens of people have died from it. The air has been thick with smoke. The air quality has been the worst in the world on the West Coast in California and particular, we are already starting to see a a disaster unfolding. It is climate disaster. So there are different things 
I guess like apocalyptic things or something that you could replace nuclear annihilation with. It's not a nuclear holocaust that we're as worried about now, but we are worried about COVID-19 or climate change. A film can take on new meaning depending on when we watch it and even the political situation we find ourselves in when we watch it. And that's what happened with me with Testament is that I watched it in early 2019 and then I watched it in late 2020. And the difference between those two worlds is stark. Very, very stark. Now, with the pandemic, is it exactly the same as what happened in the film? No. But almost 200,000 Americans are dead, as I record this, from the virus from COVID-19. People are burying their loved ones. We don't necessarily have mass graves here, but there was a period when there were refrigerated trucks outside the hospitals in New York, and we were shocked by it. And I remember when this started in March, when we were told numbers like 200,000 or 100 something thousand, I balked. I was horrified. I thought, no, that's inconceivable. And now I am living that reality. In a, in a way, what Testament is about, it's about people surviving the unimaginable. People going through something that we don't even have the lexicon for, the language for. We don't have any way to comprehend it, but it's what happens to them. And the pandemic is something similar. A year ago, you could not have predicted what has taken place in the past 10 months or more and all of our lives have changed whether you know somebody who's died or you're just living with the fear that you may get it we are all living with what this has done to our lives or you lost your job because of it it has upended our lives in unimaginable ways we'll never be the same I will never be the same maybe other people will go back to normal they'll go back to the normal you know that we had before I will never go back to who I was before it has completely shaken me to my foundation. It has scarred me and it will scar me for the rest of my life. What has happened during this pandemic? I feel shaken. Parts of me feel broken and shattered. I will admit that. I have lost faith. I've lost faith in this government. I have lost faith in humanity. I'm going to be processing this for a very long time. I'm going to be trying to make sense of all of this for a very long time. Just trying to cope with my fear and anxiety that it has also um, exacerbated as well. So I'm going to go chronologically through the film. It unfolds in a very specific way and that is important. I don't want to jump around. The chronology of the film is brilliant and it's also risky. There is this slow build or really maybe it's a slow descent and it shows this gradual breakdown of society. They really are, the family in this film, living a slow death from the radiation poisoning. And that is reflected in the way that the film unfolds. And also, this is not related to anything, but I just wanted to say that when I was doing research for this film, it was just, it was so fascinating the things that I uncovered. And and it's all just so random. And I'm going to link all of it in the show notes. And I just wanted to mention it. Because when I go into research mode for some of these episodes, I make discoveries. Now, I found that Hiroshima Maiden TV movie from my childhood. I unearthed that. I also came across a feminist film magazine in the 1970s that only put out like seven issues. It was the very early 1970s when this came 
came out and it was called Women and Film. I was looking into Lynn Lippman and I think on some web page that I went on to get information about her, there might have been a quote from the magazine, from the Women in Film magazine, reviewing the film possibly. Or no, they wouldn't have been able to do that because this came out in the 1980s. I don't know. Maybe it was, maybe one of her documentaries they reviewed or something. I don't know. But somehow I came across Women in Film magazine. I just noticed it on a web page and then I googled it. I was like, oh, Women in Film magazine, that sounds interesting. And I found the issues to download in PDF form. And it turns out that this magazine, it was short-lived, but it was very influential. And some of the issues include interviews with some of my favorite female directors, including Agnes Vard, and Barbara Loden. So I was like stunned to find this magazine. I'll link all this in the show notes. Then I got to looking into Jane Alexander's filmography and I uncovered this like TV movie, this made for TV movie that she did where she played Georgia O'Keeffe and Christopher Plummer played Alfred Steiglitz. So I uncovered that. (laughs) It's called A Marriage and it's on YouTube. Thank you to the people who upload random stuff on YouTube. So that interested me. I have a big interest in female artists and female painters and I love Georgia O'Keeffe. I had a Georgia O'Keeffe book when I was really, really young and I've always been a big fan of her art. I absolutely love it. Then also in Jane Alexander's filmography, I found this TV movie that she did in 1978 with Jenna Rollins. It's called A Question of Love. And in it, Jenna Rollins plays a woman who she had a husband, she had kids with him, but I think she leaves him and she gets in a relationship with a woman. So she's now in a lesbian relationship. And because it's the 1970s, her ex-husband tries to take her children from her. And this was a pretty groundbreaking television movie. And I had never heard of it. And what's interesting is that I I recently covered a Jenna Rollins film from 1977 called Opening Night. So she would have done this TV movie only a only a year later in 1978. And uh, I just thought that was fascinating. I have a big interest in made-for-TV movies from the past, and I had no idea that Jenna Rollins did one. And it's also about a social issue at that time in the 1970s. There were women who came out as lesbians, and they had been in relationships with men and had children, and many of those women had their children taken away from them. It's not something that's like widely talked about, but it did happen. And there's actually a poem named Minnie Bruce Pratt who went through that. She was she was part of the women's movement, came out as lesbian, and her husband took her kids away from her. She eventually repaired the relationship with her children, but they were taken away from her for a long time and she wrote about it in some of her poetry. So all of this is was of interest to me. I have really varied interests, as you might be able to tell. So it was thrilling to uncover this stuff. So now I've got all these things to explore because of Testament. I've got Women in Film Magazine to read. I've got A Question of Love to watch. It is on YouTube, by the way. I've got Hiroshima Maiden that I might watch. So I've got all kinds of stuff to explore. So to me, that's really exciting. Now we're going to go on to Testament. Estimate. 
Anyways, I just love how my research can lead me down different avenues. So now we're going to talk about Testament. First, I just want to give our cast. We have Jane Alexander as Carol Weatherly. We have William Devane as Tom Weatherly. And I remember William Devane from like some TV movies and maybe some TV series when I was younger. Like when I was younger, I watched a lot of like older shows. When I was a kid, like I was born in 1989, I would watch Nick at Night, you know, where you'd see, I would watch like Happy Days and The Odd Couple. And then I would also watch stuff from the 80s, obviously. And I really loved The Golden Girls. The Golden Girls is like my favorite TV show ever. I just remember William Devane and different stuff. I don't know if he was in the Golden Girls. I don't know, but he was definitely in some series or some TV movies that I watched as a kid. We have Rossi Harris as Brad. He's the older brother. We have Roxana Zal as Mary Liz. She's the sister. We have Lucas Haas as Scotty and Lucas Haas. He is so adorable. Many of you will know him from the Harrison Ford film Witness. We've all seen it. It used to be shown on cable constantly when I was younger. Saw this film so much. And he was such an adorable kid. Well, Testament was actually his first film his first film ever. A lot of people probably don't know that, but I, I think he might be the most adorable child actor ever. <laughs> I just think he's so adorable. And then we also have like small parts by Rebecca De Mornay and Kevin Costner. They play a couple in this film. They actually end up losing their child. Their, their little baby infant dies. And these were very early roles for them. Kevin Costner was not known at that time and neither was Rebecca De Mornay. For me, I will always remember Rebecca De Mornay in The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. I am obsessed with that film. Obsessed with it. I have seen it so many times. That's what I'm talking about when I mean that I watched like thrillers, like thrillers in the 1990s. The Hand That Rocks the Cradle was a big one for me. And Julianne Moore is in that. It's sort of an early role for Julianne Moore. I was obsessed with Seattle in that film, like the way that Seattle looked and the house, like they live in the most gorgeous house in that film. Anyways, it's just a film that I have watched many, many times. And it's an, it's one of those films that they show on cable a whole lot as well. That's our cast. Testament is set in a small town in California, or maybe it's like a medium-sized town. I'm not sure. The film starts really as the typical day in the life of a middle-class American family in the early 1980s. Mom's making the bed. Dad is hanging out with the kids. They're bicycling through the neighborhood. There is this moment where they go past a graveyard that's definitely like a premonition of what's to come because later on in the film, near the end, we'll see that graveyard and we'll see people gathering there to bury their loved ones and little Scotty the the little boy actually goes to the graveyard one day and he's like burying his toys so it's the ordinariness of this family that I think makes them so universal and relatable to us. They don't know really that this is like their last morning of normalcy or their last day of normalcy, the last day for them to be as they are, to be as they've always been, and to be people who have their whole lives ahead of them. They don't even know what's coming. It's like the last day before like a terrible loss. When I made this note, because I take notes as I'm watching, I got to thinking like, what was my last day before my dad died? Like, what was that last day like? I had never thought about it, and I don't know. I do have a diary 
from when he died. I started to keep a diary probably when I hit my teens, probably around 13 or 14 years old. I started to keep a regular diary of my life. I wrote a lot of poetry when I was a kid. Oh God. God. I have all my diaries. So I have diaries that go back like 15 or 16 years at this point. I have a ton of them, just dozens of them. I have read them. I have like gone back and read some of those diaries and (laughs) y'all, they're so bad. The poetry. (laughs) I don't know why I'm laughing so hard. The poetry is so bad. I should probably burn them or something so that nobody ever reads my bad poetry. So I was keeping a diary when he died and I know exactly which diary it is. It's almost radioactive to me. I don't go near it because I know what's in it. Because the day he died, I wrote it down in my diary and I said, (laughs) and I was 16, I said, my daddy died today. I mean, that's what I wrote and it it still breaks my heart. So like the character of Mary Liz, I saw a lot of myself in her where she's mourning her father and grieving him. And she seems to be out of all three children, the one that takes his death the hardest. So I kept a diary and now I'm wondering if I should go and look at it. And what did I write? the day before he died. What was my life like? Because I had no idea that I was living the last day that I would ever have a father. It was the last day of wholeness. It was the last day of a version of myself that I will never be again. And that's what I saw in this family. They are a version of themselves They are whole. All of them are together. They are a version of themselves that they will never be again. Because the next day, everything changes. Everything ends. Or I think about, what about the last day before the pandemic started? Like maybe the day before we got news of of this virus and that we, before we first ever heard about it. Because I have read through some of my diaries from like a year ago or like December or January. Things were so different. Or if you go back and look at, if you're on Instagram, Instagram or if you keep like a personal record of your life, you know, you could go back and and look at what was I doing in January 2020 and then you had no idea what was coming. And that's what this this is like for this family. And Lipman makes the decision to spend a lot of time on it. It doesn't just last a minute. We see them living. We see their banter. We see all of these things that they're doing. She spends time on it. This is what I love about this film. This is what I love about Lynn Lippman. She spends time on things that other directors and other movies wouldn't have even paid attention to. Wouldn't have even paid attention to. Because in a lot of disaster films, they tend to focus on the large impact on society, not the impact within the intimate space of one family's home. By Lippman doing that, she immediately makes the film personal. She makes the subject matter personal and emotional. You connect to this family, to this mother, Carol Weatherly, to these children, Scotty, Mary Liz, and Brad. You care about them as you care for your own mother, your own family. And I like that it focuses on a mother and the domestic space of the home. I got the sense that she was a stay-at-home mother, a homemaker. I don't know if she had a job outside of the home. So her life is very much about the children and her husband, the house, and all of that. She does 
do a play at the school or at the local church or something like that. She does a play with the children. I think she's directing it. So she does that outside the home, but mainly the home is her sphere, right? It is her world. So the film is not about what's happening outside in the larger world. We don't really know what's happening with the neighbors. We don't know what's happening politically, what's happened to the government, what's happening in other countries. We don't know. We are as in the dark as the characters are. We don't know if these are the last people alive on earth or what. We don't know what's going on, but neither do they. So the film withholds answers to us. It doesn't give us any information that it doesn't give the main characters. So we understand what it's like to live in that ignorance of not knowing what's happening, to live in the chaos of not knowing what's going on in the world because you don't have that communication. You don't have those lines of communication. So we're just as in the dark as the characters are. So it's not about the larger world. It's about the interior world of one family in one neighborhood of America during a nuclear holocaust. We also see the power of mothers. Carol takes control. Carol does not have her husband there anymore to rely on. She has to do all of this on her own and take care of these three children. That's what she has to do. And that's what she does as a mother. And she does take care of them. So it's a film about mothers and children during a nuclear holocaust. When usually in a lot of disaster films, we get a more political view or a more male perspective, like how it affects people in the military or people in the government or men doing things, men out there doing whatever they're doing. We don't often see what would happen to a mother and her children during a nuclear holocaust. And I love that it centers a woman and it centers the domestic sphere, which is usually associated with femininity and with women's lives. And on this day, you know, she lingers on that day and even that morning because it doesn't quite happen until the afternoon. So there's this day of normalcy and then the next morning when the kids go off to school and then in the afternoon it all happens. But they're doing all these ordinary things that are going to be disrupted with the nuclear event. Putting the trash out to be picked up, for instance. The mother and the father, you know, Carol and Tom, they even bicker that day, you know, or, or later that day at night when they're in bed. Just their usual arguing and fussing that you do in a family. They do end up making up and, you know, they make love as well. So it's just so ordinary. They don't, they don't have any idea what's coming. They don't have any, you know, what it also reminds me of is September 10th, 2001. A lot of people, when we go to these, when we uh, watch these commemorations of 9-11, you know, the terrorist attacks that happened on September 11th, 2001 here in the United States, as many of you know, I'm sure it was a catastrophic day in our nation's history. It changed our world completely and we've never been the same, much like this pandemic. A lot of people will talk about oh, what were people doing September 10th? I have a big interest in September 11th. And so I was watching stuff on YouTube about it for a while. And I actually found a, um, a news broadcast in New York that was from September 10th. 
and you can find it on YouTube, like a local New York news station. It was just the most random stories that they were talking about. And then at the, I think that at the end of the broadcast, they actually showed a live shot of the Twin Towers on September 10th on that evening. A lot of people have brought up about how the almost 3,000 people who died on September 11th, on September 10th, they were alive. They were alive and they had no idea what would happen to them the next day. They had no idea that when they went to to work at the Twin Towers, they didn't know what would happen to them. And so to me, that's why the, the opening scene or the first 20 or so minutes are so powerful is that this is the before of their lives. You know, I often think about my life in that way of the before and the after of my father's death. I, I think nationally or or whatever like in terms of a culture we think about 9-11 as a before and an after and I think that the pandemic will will also be this dividing line of a before and an after in our lives I know it will for me I don't know how it will be for other people so the before matters a lot I think when something traumatic happens to you you think about that before You think about your life before the trauma. Sometimes that's what gets you through the after is those memories. So the film, it it heavily focuses on the before. And I think that's important. It doesn't start right away with the nuclear holocaust. Like I think a lot of films, like a lot of films probably would have had the nuclear explosion happen within a few minutes. But Littman totally subverts our expectations and says, no, I'm going to make you watch this family's life for 20 minutes and see who they are and see how much they love each other and see their everyday ordinary lives. And I think it's pretty damn amazing. So we see their routines, their interactions, it fleshes them out. And I also think it builds suspense because you know something's coming. These scenes make what happens later all the more heartbreaking what happens later on in the film makes it even more heartbreaking because we remember how the family once was just as the family members themselves remember who they once were and what their life was like. And that's what we get with the home movies that are periodically shown in the film. These are like memories of who they were before, who they were in the before. We remember their laughter and their interactions, their wholeness. You know, they are like whole before they're blown apart. And so the next day, dad goes off to work, mom's cleaning the house, kids are at school, mother's working on the play with those children, the local children, they're rehearsing. And in the afternoon, they are doing the most mundane thing when the world starts to end, when their new reality begins. They're just watching TV. That's all they're doing. At first, the TV goes out, but then the signal comes back in and a, ne- a network anchor says that there's been an explosion of nuclear devices, he says, in New York and throughout the East Coast. And then he says, this is real. This is real. And that like really makes it sink in. And then you hear these sirens 
There are some flashes of light, I guess, to indicate that bombs have been dropped. And once that ends, the neighbors go outside. They're talking to each other. They're trying to figure out what to do. And that's like a natural reaction. And I think Lippman said in an interview that that was important to her to show what people would really do. Like, should you go outside after a nuclear bomb has been dropped? No, you should probably stay inside your home because the radiation's going to be in the air. But of course, people would congregate outside and they would seek out their neighbors and they would want to know what was happening. So she was interested in showing what people would authentically do, what it what would come naturally to them. The father, Tom, went to San Francisco for his job or something like that. Also, before the the nuclear bombs are dropped, she's listening to the messages on the answering machine. And at first, she thinks that he's going to come back home. He leaves some kind of message of like, oh, I'm going to get out of here early. I'll be home soon. But of course, that's not what happens. He's in San Francisco. And apparently, San Francisco has been wiped away by the nuclear bombs. He just never comes home. They don't know what happened to him. They know, they don't even know for sure if he's dead or if he's like somewhere else trying to survive but doesn't have any way to contact them. They don't really know if he's dead. It's most likely that he is. He just never comes home. He he vanishes into thin air only leaving some some messages on the answering machine that's it that's all that's left of him he he becomes an absence in the film and his absence is quite enormous in the film and haunts the film is woven into the film is the absence of the father the death of the father and that absolutely struck a chord with me this is the, a film about losing your father right like he is the first one to die and his death haunts the rest of the family for the rest of the film and they have to grieve him and they never know what happened to him they never do know and there's something deeply haunting about that that they never have any answers and they never have his body. They have no way to bury him, to hold a funeral for him. He just is no more. He just no longer exists. And it's just, even as I talk about it, it gives me chills. Like he's just gone. He's not there anymore. The only real way that they're able to communicate with the outside world is through like CB radios. There's this elderly man named Henry Abhart. He has a CB radio where he tries to get in contact with people. And a lot of the places that he tries to connect to, he never gets an answer. And so he assumes that nobody is alive. And he talks about all kinds of major cities on the West Coast, including the Bay Area, where San Francisco would be. There's no answer from any of those places. None whatsoever. And so with the father gone, the mother and the children have to survive without him. And they have to turn to each other as a family in order to survive. And we see that throughout the film. Like at one point they're lying in bed together, all of them, and they miss the father. They have to lean on each other to get through it. The mother, Carol, I just call her the mother because it just feels more natural to me. But Carol starts to keep a diary. It's really 
her testament. I think that is where the title comes from because the definition of testament is, or one of the definitions is something that serves as a sign or evidence of a speci- of a specified fact, event, or quality. I like that. First of all, I liked the short story that it was told through diary entries. And I like that the diary entries were incorporated into the film because these diary entries are really a- an attempt to bear witness to the horror that they are living through and to leave a record of it behind. It reminded me of like people who kept diaries during the Holocaust. They wanted to leave behind some kind of record, not only of their lives, but of what they suffered and what they witnessed. That was part of it too. Like the diaries weren't just personal. They were also political in that way because they were being exterminated and annihilated, but maybe their words would outlive them. That the body could be destroyed, but maybe the diaries, the paper, the ink could not. That the the diaries would speak for them and would be evidence and would be witness testimony of the crime. Now with this film, with the nuclear holocaust, what is the crime? Who is the perpetrator? We don't know who's dropped the bombs. We don't know why. We don't know who all the victims are. We don't know. There's so much that's unknown. There is a mystery that envelops the film, that envelops the characters. But the diary is Carol's voice. The diary is the mother's voice. It is the record that she wants to leave behind. And it's a very human desire, I think, to leave a record behind of what we suffered and how we lived. And part of me worries that we will forget this time We will forget what we lived during the pandemic and what it was like to be this vulnerable. And in a way, it feels like we're already forgetting it, that people are already moving on. They're tired of it. They're over it. And it reminds me a bit of the flu pandemic of 1918. Over 600,000 Americans died from that. Millions of people around the world died from it. But it, it barely showed up in books, in anything of the time period. People just forgot about it. People just, people had lived through it. The people who survived it and lived through it didn't want to think about it. They didn't want to talk about it. They didn't want to write about it. (laughs) There's no films about it. Very, it shows up in very few books. There's a book by Catherine Ann Porter where she does talk about it. There are a few books about it. And what I mean is like fiction. Of course, there are history books that have been written about the 1918 flu pant flu pandemic but I'm talking about the art of the time period it doesn't really show up it's not really acknowledged and it was it's been called the forgotten pandemic I think and part of me worries that we will forget this that we will forget all these lives that have been lost all these families that are grieving those that they've lost. I was watching the news just today and they were talking about some of the people who had died from this and it was too much. I mean, one victim was like a nurse in her 20s. Another was a child. You know, it was just, you know, all kinds of different people, different ages, different. It's heartbreaking to see the faces of the of the victims who have died. I hope we don't forget it, but it feels like that may happen because if America is known for anything, it's amnesia, I think. We do have a historical amnesia. I already feel like people are forgetting 9-11. 
or they're forgetting the circumstances that led to the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. They're forgetting the political stuff that ha- the stuff that happened during the Bush years, things like that. There's certainly been a rewriting of history and a bit of a political and cultural amnesia. But I lived through all of that. I lived through those years. I know exactly what happened, and I'm living through this now too. I will never forget what happened. I tried to write about it more in my diary when it started, but then I. I really stopped. It became too much. For a while there, I was keeping like a daily record of everything that was happening and I would write down the death toll and I wanted to keep a record of what was happening. And then I got to the point where I just couldn't face it. I couldn't face it in that way anymore. And I stopped doing that And I know that I need to get back to it. And I need to make sure that I am keeping some kind of record, at least for myself. But what I'm saying is that it's a very human thing. That when you're going through something traumatic, and I would even say like when I lost my dad in the years since then, when I've gone through really traumatic things and or difficult things, because I lost a lot of family members in a short period of time. Like my dad died and then my grandmother died the next year and then my uncle died and all these deaths happened within about three years you know like within a three-year period I sort of spiraled because of it I I just couldn't handle what was happening sometimes when you're going through something really intense or scary you want to keep a record of it sometimes you want to write about it you want to put it into words in some way or put your feelings into words. And I feel like maybe that's what Carol's trying to do is that if she writes it down, then maybe she can get outside of it. It won't be so overwhelming. She can try to make sense of it if she writes it down into language. You know, I am a writer. I've written from a very young age and always loved writing. And you, I use writing for catharsis and for therapeutic value. I really try to write my feelings and my thoughts. And that's the kind of writer I am. I'm not some kind of official published writer here, okay? But I consider myself a writer because I write. And I think if you write, then you're a writer. And it shouldn't matter if you're published. shouldn't matter if you ever write a book. If you write and it feels good to you and it's life-saving for you, and that's, that's what matters to me. I don't care if I'm ever published. I don't care if anybody ever reads it or likes it or whatever. I write in order to express who I am. I write to express what I feel, what I think, my inner world, everything inside of me. That's what I'm trying to write and express. It gives me clarity and it's cathartic and it helps me. And so I think maybe Carol finds that in it as well as if she can write this down, if she can leave a record behind then maybe they didn't suffer for nothing. Maybe they didn't suffer in vain. Maybe people, maybe she's also writing to the people in the future who might find her words and might find what she has recorded. And they can get a sense of what life was really like during this nuclear holocaust. Because there may be a group of humans who survive it and who look for these records. Just like we look for records of like the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans. And I think of like Sappho and her fragments that we found. Maybe Maybe that's also what she's writing. She's writing to the to the future, to the people who might come after her, might find her words. So the bef- the before is 
the first 20 minutes and then we get into the after and at first things are not so bad like they try to maintain a sense of normalcy they eat breakfast around the the kitchen table even though there's no electricity they try to drink milk but it doesn't taste right because the radiation and stuff like that they still have food they have like canned food for now everything hasn't completely fallen apart there's still some gas available for instance even though the lines are really long now there is a neighbor boy whose parents were away and most likely died and were killed and they take him in his name is Larry and so they take in an orphan right and they have to something that struck me in this part of the film in the aftermath is the lack of the federal response or presence and I don't think this would have struck me the same as when I watched it in January 2019. It wouldn't have been on my mind quite as much. I actually wrote down my thoughts immediately after watching the film in January 2019. I don't always do that with films that I watch, but if I have a really strong reaction to a film, I know that I'm going to want to eventually do an episode about it. I will write down my thoughts so that potentially in the future I can go back and look at them and get a sense of what I was thinking and feeling about the film and I did that with Testament and I went back and I read what I had written and a lot of it was what I noticed on the second time too but with the second viewing with the pandemic and everything I noticed different things that I did not notice with that first viewing and one of them was the lack of the federal response because that's what's happened with the pandemic is that there's been a huge lack of a federal response there's even been what I would say like a sabotaging you know like a deliberate misinformation campaign around masks around uh, testing around all kinds of things and we see the political intrusion Uh, that's happening with the CDC for instance our faith in our institutions is being shaken and stuff like that so if anything the federal response has been not just like lackluster but actively harmful because we can't get correct information we can't get the testing that we need the contact tracing that we need there's a lot that's going wrong with the federal response for sure. The people in the town are really on their own and they eventually gather at a local church. There's word of some looting. A lot of people are on edge. There's really no resources being brought in from the government. It's just not there. No one is coming to save them. At the same time, there is a great deal of cooperation and people are helping each other. Now, I definitely noticed this the second time watching. The difference between this film's idea of people and the reality is that now we are not unified. We do not come together. If a nuclear attack happened now, people would not react the way that the people in this film reacted. I truly believe that because I've seen the way people have reacted during the pandemic and it has been terrible. The division, the conspiracy theories, all kinds of stuff like that. There has not been cooperation, right? People have been like physically attacked for being asked to wear a mask in a, you know, in a store or something like that. Tensions have gotten really high here and our our population's very divided. So I don't think we would be unified or come together. If, If something like that happened now, like half the country wouldn't believe it was happening. I mean right? There would be a bunch of conspiracy theories on Facebook. We don't really care about each other. 
Like we just don't. And you can see that in a lot of actions that people have taken from partying, you know, together, gathering in large crowds without masks, things like that. There's not cooperation. There's not consideration for your fellow people, you know, in your community or anything like that. It's been really sad to watch it and pretty, pretty much shaken my faith in people, my faith in humanity. So after the bombs, radiation poisoning is the greatest threat to human life. And there isn't really anything they can do to defend themselves against it. They're told to drink bottled water and eat canned food. Food, right? There's nothing that can be done. And in the film, that's what people die of. They die of the radiation poisoning. And it's like a slow death. Like at first, they're okay for a while. And then they gradually start to fade and start to die. And it occurred to me as I watched the church scene that perhaps what also makes this film scary is that it shows Americans being put in a situation of vulnerability and danger that we are just not used to being put in, but that we have often inflicted upon other people. For instance, the Japanese with the dropping of the atomic bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki or the invasion of Iraq and the, what was it, shock and awe of all the bombs that were dropped and killed tens of thousands of people. And I think over the course of the war, like hundreds of thousands of Iraqis have died. And I'm sure when the bombs were dropped and their homes were reduced to rubble, they kind of lived like the people in this movie didn't have electricity, didn't have a lot of food, didn't have anybody to come and save them. I mean, no, there wasn't radiation poisoning necessarily, but their lives were completely ruined and destroyed. So we're not used to being put in a situation of vulnerability like that. We are accustomed to being the ones with power, the ones who dropped the bombs. If you think about it, the implication of this film is that another country has dropped bombs on us. That is not something that is normal in American life. That is not what we are used to. That's not something we have gone through where we have been living in places that get bombed. That is the implication and that implication means that the United States has been attacked and we're not used to that. We're not used to being in that position. We are usually the ones droning other countries or killing people. It's not our city. And then, and then we see images of that, that violence and that death in our newspapers and on TV. Like we see that we're not used to seeing our own people treated that way or going through that. The only thing that comes close is 9-11. That, that was the only day, September 11th, 2001, where we knew what it was like to be under attack or to be um, threatened or vulnerable in that way. So we're not the ones that have the bombs dropped on us. So the roles are reversed in this film. And I think even as like an American, it can make you uncomfortable as a viewer to imagine what it would be like to be in that position, to have another country that had power over you and that chose to bomb you and kill you. I mean, it's really horrific when you sit and think about it. So Americans are shown in a similar situation as the Japanese would have been after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, helpless, and like a defenseless. This is a film really about the breakdown of the world, breakdown of the body, the slow death of the body from something that they can't even see. They can't see the radiation. They can't see it at all. It's a completely invisible enemy, which reminds me a little bit of the virus. 
like we can't see it we don't know like when we're infected with it necessarily unless we get a test and so that's scary as well as it's in the air it's something that's in the air that is affecting their bodies there's this scene where the mother carol she wears the father's sweater and that's sort of a way to be closer to him she has to grieve him even as she tries to survive and take care of the children and that really struck me when i was watching it like she doesn't have him she doesn't have any help and she also has to grieve him there are even some people who are leaving for canada that sounds familiar like there's all kinds of people like after trump was elected who were gonna leave for canada good luck getting in canada folks (laughs) like what are you talking about? I've heard they have really stringent immigration stuff too. So some people are going up to Canada and trying to escape. So it's interesting in this early part of the aftermath how everything isn't quite as dire as you would think it would be. You would think people would be looting and murdering and there would be tons of violence. Maybe in real life there would be. I don't know. But in this film there's not. They still have their cans of food. Everything has not descended into chaos. Not many in the community have died yet like they even go on a picnic at one point and they're still able to laugh the children's play goes on they even put the children's play on that um that the mother was rehearsing or she was directing so people are clutching clinging to the normalcy but at the end of that play there are people in the audience who are crying. They probably are sort of remembering what life was like before the the nuclear disaster. And things start to, you know, things do start to get intense. Kevin Costner and Rebecca De Mornay, they're a couple, and they end up losing their baby. Their baby dies from radiation poisoning. And in her diary, the mother writes, what if the baby is the lucky one. She thinks that the dead are the lucky ones because she has to continue living and she has to watch everything unfold and she will eventually watch her children die. Two out of three of her children die. And there's this very moving scene of Mary Liz. She gets upset at something and she goes to her room and she's crying. And the mother follows her in there and tries to comfort her. But Mary Liz says that she wants her dad. And in this scene, you can see a hole in the mother's shirt. It's like at her armpit or something like that. And I thought that was such a perfect detail to show how things are starting to get more serious. Their clothes are falling apart. They have holes in their clothes. And the mother and Mary Liz cry and they hug. This is a scene and a good example of the way the film looks at grief. Like you can feel the grief and the fear. The not knowing what happened to him. And like I said, his absence hangs over the film. And in the background, you see this little shrine almost that Mary Liz has erected for her father with all kinds of photos of him. There's even a baby photo of him. We don't often think of like baby photos of our parents, but she has that of him. And that really brought back memories for me of having photos of my dad after he passed away. And this scene hit me really hard and and really made me cry because I remember after my father died that I found this baby photo of him. And there was something about seeing baby photos of him that just destroyed me. I mean, they still do. And what's interesting is that I look a lot like my dad physically. I have his face and his facial features. And when I was a baby, (laughs) 
Oh, Lord. When I was a baby, I looked like the spitting image of my dad. I didn't have a lot of hair either when I was an infant. And if you look at baby pictures of me and you look at baby pictures of him, we look a lot alike. (laughs) And I still look like him. And it's hard sometimes when I look in the mirror and I see his face and I see him looking back at me. And sometimes I don't know how I feel about that. On the one hand, I have a lot of self-hatred that I deal with. And it's not just like hatred of like myself, but of what I look like. I have a lot of issues with like body image and self-image. And I've had them since I was a child for a really long time. I've been thinking lately because I've been trying to love myself, give love to myself and give compassion and kindness to myself. I know I sound like some new age self-help book crap, I know, but I really am trying to love myself. And my self-image is part of this, of like being able to look at myself and say, you're beautiful or you matter, you have worth, instead of tearing myself down and saying terrible things about myself and things like that. And I got to thinking like, I look like my dad, right? And I have his face a lot like a lot of his features. And you know, I can look at pictures of my dad and I love him. I don't look at pictures of him a lot because it usually leads to a full breakdown for me. I still can't handle photos of him. I don't have any out. I don't do that. (laughs) It's, I have like a locket with a picture of him in it, but I don't, I cannot put pictures of him out in picture frames. I can't do it. I don't know how people do. I, I just wouldn't be able to function. And so I look at pictures of him and I love him. You know, I don't sit there and look at my dad and say, look at that ugly face. Look how terrible he looks. No one will ever love him. No one, you know, I don't say that when I look at pictures of my dad. And when I think about my dad, I don't say, oh my God, what a terrible person. You know, he's, he's just the worst, right? Because I love this person. And it's like, if I can look at him and I can love him and why can't I love myself? when I have so many features and so many traits from him, me and him were very, very similar. And I was really close to him when I was young. I was what they call a daddy's girl, of course. (laughs) I was really close to him and I had a lot of personality traits from him and my face looks similar to his. And it's like, if I can give love to him, if I can do that, why can't I give love to myself? So much of me is him. That's what I'm trying to say. So much of me is from a person that I deeply, profoundly love. So why do I hate myself when so much of me is him? When so much of me is this man that I love? Why can't I love myself if I can love him. And he loved me. Like I know he loved me. He would want me to love myself too. He would want me to love myself as much as he loved me. And it's like if he could see worth in me and he could see value in me and he saw me as worthy of his love, why can't I give that to myself? You know, and I have to, I have to do it, right? I have to I have to do these things. I have to not want to destroy myself anymore. I have to stop hating myself. I have to stop not wanting to exist because I feel like for so long, that's how I felt. Like I didn't want to exist. I didn't want to be alive. I didn't want to be here. I hated everything about myself. I felt worthless and undeserving of love. And so I 
just gave up. I mean, I feel like I gave up for a really long time. That's where I'm at. You know, my dad loved me and cared about me. And there's a lot of him in me. I have to be better to myself because that's what he would want me to do. And he would not have wanted me to curl up in a ball and give up. He just wouldn't. (laughs) He wouldn't want me to be in pain. He wouldn't want me to suffer. He wouldn't want me to miss out on life. He would not want me to hide from the world, hide from life. He wouldn't have wanted any of that. And that's what I've done for a really long time because I couldn't carry the pain of his death. I couldn't handle it. I couldn't bear it. And so I'm trying to get to a place where I can bear it better because it will always hurt. And there will always be this open wound in me because of what happened to him. But I've got to, I've got to find a way to live. I've got to find a way to live. I've got to live with his death. How do you live with death? How do you do that? How do you live with grief and loss? I don't know. I haven't been doing a really good job of it. (laughs) I've been failing at it. There's really no playbook for it. You know, you just do the best you can but I haven't been doing too good of a job. This scene with Mary Liz just got to me, like the pictures of her dad, like that just killed me. I just sat there and cried when I watched it. I just cried (laughs) because I remembered his baby picture and it's hard looking at a baby picture of a dead parent because you see them at the beginning, the very, very beginning of their life, of his life, his one life, that he will never have again. And you see the potential and the innocence and the promise. And then you know what happened to that baby. You know that he's dead now. And he was only 45 years old. And that he missed out on a lot. You know his beginning. You see his beginning and you know his end. And it's just tears your heart out. I was also moved by the way they tried to comfort each other. How they hold on to each other. That's what the family does for as long as they can. They they hold on to each other. More people start to die. Gets up to 1,300 at one point. The hospital is open, but with minimal staff, the garbage, the garbage service stops. Things are starting to decline. It was inevitable. I mean, we knew this was going to happen. And then one day, Mary Liz and the mother are in a, in a bedroom together. The mother's making the bed. She's always doing chores around the house, the mother, trying to maintain order in the midst of chaos, keep everything together. She's always doing that. And Mary Liz is looking at these old photos and she starts to mention memories. She mentions the grandparents' house and what it smelled like. That really resonated with me because I can still remember what my grandmother's house smelled like. Like I can smell the fireplace. I can smell the coffee. I can see different tchotchkes that my grandmother owned and I can still see that house and smell it so it's all so clear so she's just asking the mother if she remembers different things they're sharing all these memories and then she asks um, the mom if she remembers when Mary Liz walked in on the parents having sex and that's what leads Mary Liz to ask the mother what it's like to make love And this is a scene that a lot of people remember from the film. And I think it was the actress who played Mary Liz, Roxana. She said that people still come up to her or people still tell her like, oh, I remember that scene where you asked the mother about what it's like to make love. So this is one that really gets to people 
or they just really feel moved by it. So she asks her mother what it's like to make love knowing that it's something that she will never be able to experience. And it's really heartbreaking. There's this sense of an unfulfilled and unfinished life with Mary Liz and that Mary Liz knows it, that she knows she's not gonna make it very long. It's not just that she won't make love one day with a man. It's all the things she'll never get to do with her life. That's what hits you. It's, you know, it's not just about, oh, she won't have sex. It's about she won't get to live her life. She'll never have these things that her mother got to have. Her mother got to have sex and get married and have children and create a life and just live. (laughs) She just got to live her life and be on the earth for several more decades than Mary Liz will get to have. She got to have so many life experiences. She got to travel all kinds of things like that. So that's what hits you. And the mother responds about what it's like to make love. She says, quote, when you love someone, you want to be as close to them as you can get. You make love and you feel almost like the same body, like it was intended. You have a space and that person fills it up. Unquote. I just thought that was a really beautiful response. The mother talks about how much she loved the father and she goes on to say, quote, everyone's always alone and yet there can be this gift, this making of miracles, unquote. And Mary Liz replies, not for me. I thought that was beautiful. Everyone's alone and yet there can be this gift, this making of miracles. And what she means is the making of children, the creation of children. That's something that Mary Liz won't have. Now, of course, not all women want to have children and women shouldn't feel like they have to have children to be complete or anything like that. But a lot of people want to have children, men and women. It is part of the human experience, the human condition. And Mary Liz won't get to have that option You know, she won't even have the option to have children if that's what she wants. She won't get to do so many things and to have so many experiences. She will be deprived of all of that and robbed of all of that. She won't get to fall in love and maybe have children if she wants that. So heartbreaking you know, to, to hear that. She's conscious of it, that she, she's not going to have those experiences. She's a teenager and she will only ever be a teenager. She will never get to live longer than that. She's really facing her mortality at an age when nobody should have to face their mortality. That's the thing about this film is that children die in it. I mean, how many films can you say have children die in them? Most of the time when we watch a film, children don't die. And also in a film, the main characters do not die. There are rare exceptions to that, yes. But usually the protagonists in a film do not die. We don't have to grieve these characters. We don't have to face their death. Testament two children die, Mary Liz and Scotty, in that family. And of course, the father dies too. I think that's also why it hits you so hard is that this is not like other films that you've watched. Other films don't break that pact. Like there's almost this pact between the viewer and the director that says, you're going to keep the protagonist safe. They are going to survive no matter what. They are going to get out of that situation. Testament breaks that pact totally and, and kills 
these characters off and it's heartbreaking and the mother is just utterly helpless as she watches her family die and that might be what shakes me the most that might be and that is yes it is the most terrifying part is that you would watch the people that you love more than anything in the world slowly die and there is literally nothing you can do i don't know a more horrific scenario personally than a mother watching her children die and having to bury them in the backyard. The whole premise of the film is horrifying. Like there is no other horrific thing other than that. There just isn't. And Scotty actually dies first. He's the youngest. And there's this scene where she takes him to the bathroom and he's dying and she washes him in the sink or she tries to wash him. And it's just devastating to watch this mother trying to take care of her child as she watches him die. And she knows he's slipping away and that there's nothing to do and there's nothing she can do. It's a very tender scene. So this is when we start to get into the last 30 minutes of the film about the time when Mary Liz asks about what's it, what is it like to make love because in that question is the is the um acknowledgement that she's never going to experience it or feel it which is an acknowledgement of her upcoming death and that is when it becomes very real in those last 30 minutes this is when the film gets very dark very bleak horrific and mentally devastating to the viewer i think absolutely and then she's washing scotty in the sink and then she goes and she holds him in a rocking chair like she probably did when he was a baby and she sings softly to him and then he's singing a little bit too but not as loud and she's just holding him and rocking him in that chair oh my god it brought tears to my eyes and we see a whole movie of scotty usually around the time that a character dies Littman will show the home movie she did that with the father and then she does it with scotty too these movies are a reminder of their lives they are a reminder of the before they are a reminder of when the family was whole when the family was together and now they are torn apart broken apart and so those home movies are like memories and i just found myself getting very emotional when they would pop up on the screen and you it was it was just a shocking juxtaposition as well of like here is this child wrapped in a sheet in the yard and then here is this home movie of that same child smiling and laughing in happier times in the before and scotty does die and they wrap him in a sheet and they bury him in the backyard the the mother doesn't want to Carol doesn't want to bury him she's looking for like his stuffed teddy bear or something like that and she can't find it she's furiously going around the house looking for it but this is their life now and Brad and Mary Liz are very calm almost numb when they're about to bury their brother in the backyard because there's nowhere else to put him and I thought there was there are so many scenes in this film that are so moving so the mother's looking for batteries for the flashlights and she desperately needs them she goes to the answering machine that has batteries in it and she finds the husband's final message where he says that he's staying in San Francisco she had not played that message earlier when the nuclear attack happened when the light flashed she had only heard his message where he said he was going to get off early and come home so it's confirmation that he did stay in san francisco but it's also his voice 
I mean, she's stunned to hear his voice again, but she also seems thankful and moved and emotional to hear it again. And she kisses the machine as though it were him, but she needs the batteries and survival is what matters now. And she takes the batteries out of the machine and she loses his voice forever. She can't afford to be sentimental and keep the batteries in that machine so that she could keep his voice. She needs him for her flashlight. So we are watching this family. We're watching the community slowly die, but we're watching the family slowly die. And we find out that the cemeteries are full and now the bodies are just being burned. They're just being burned in pyres. Mary Liz dies. Mary Liz was her firstborn. And we see her wrapping the, we see Mary Liz's body wrapped in a sheet on her bed and the mother is stitching it closed. It is so haunting to see these bodies wrapped in sheets. I can't even explain it to you. That's what, that's the thing about this film. There is no blood. There is no gore. There is no real explicit graphic violence at all. Nothing. But it is absolutely devastating, brutal, haunting. I mean, the film almost gave me a breakdown. (laughs) I'm serious. I was crying so hard in some of these scenes. There's... (laughs) There's no violence. There's no blood. There's nothing. And yet I was crying and I felt terrified, especially in the last 30 minutes. I don't know how Lynn Littman did it. I don't know how she did it. But just seeing those bodies wrapped in sheets was enough to make me fall apart. Absolutely. You cry for every single person in this family who dies. That is how much you feel for them. That is how connected you feel to them. You cry for Scotty. You cry for Mary Liz. Hell, you may even cry for the father, even though he was kind of a jerk. And Lynn Littman said that William Devane was (laughs) a huge asshole on set. He eventually got it together, but at first he was terrible to work with and treated her terribly. And she really had to like lay down the wall to get him to cooperate. So you might even cry for the father, possibly. You cry for every single person. And then you see them putting bodies onto trucks. This is when we're getting into very dark, very disturbing territory that to me was very just unsettling. They eventually take in Hiroshi once his father dies, the man who owned the gas station. The food is dwindling. The mother's eyes start to look glazed over. You can tell that things are declining. Things are deteriorating. The mother's getting sicker. There's a very powerful scene that just it still knocks me out. And it's when the mother, Carol, goes to a pyre. She goes to where there's this huge pyre and they're putting bodies on it. And it's just in the middle of the neighborhood. It's just in the middle of the community. She finds out that Henry, the one that did the CB radio, that he's dead. Brad tells her that, her oldest son. He leaves. So she's alone there in front of this pyre. Her face is illuminated by the flames and she just drops to her knees and she claws at the earth, holds the earth in her hands. It's so primal because this is what I think grief can do to us. Grief is very primal and grief 
can make you feel connected to that primal, like eternal human thing. I don't know how to explain it. Where you almost feel connected to like something eternal, something greater than you, something beyond you. You almost feel connected to every other person who has ever lost somebody that they loved. It is that kind of experience when it happens to you. I don't know if it's happened to all of you who are listening. You may be at an age or at a point in your life where you haven't lost anybody that you deeply loved. You may be lost a long dist, a long lost aunt or a grandparent that you barely saw when you were little in elementary school. I know that that happened to me before my father died. I certainly had grandparents that had died. My father's parents were dead. People had died that were related to me. But when my father died, when it was somebody that I saw every day of my life for 16 years, somebody I knew, somebody I loved, Somebody that it was unimaginable that they would cease to exist or that they would disappear from my life and that I loved just so deeply. Nothing prepares you for it at all. Nothing will ever prepare you for it. It is, it's just something that can't even be spoken. And even though I talk about it all the time, maybe it is an attempt to put it into language because I feel that it is something that can't be put into language, that it is unspeakable. And when you are first told that that person is dead, it is primal. It is absolutely primal. What it does to your body, what comes out of what comes out of you, if you scream, if you cry, if you fall to the floor, you can't feel your body, whatever happens, it is something that you are completely out of control of. And it is something that you will have never felt before in your life. And it feels like it could kill you in that moment. And you're dazed by it. And you can't believe that it didn't kill you. You can't believe that you're still alive after it happens. It's that intense. That is what I think this mother is conveying is her primal grief at losing her daughter and her youngest son. She hasn't been able to express anything up to this point. She has had to survive. She has had to be, had to be practical. She can't be sentimental. She can't be emotional. She can't really feel it for a long time. And it's like in this moment, she feels it. She is allowed to feel it. She must feel it. And she screams, quote, who did this? God damn you, unquote. That's what she screams. Who did this? It is a scream for God. It is a yell for God. It is a desire to know why. What is this? Who did this? Why is this happening? Why have I lost my children? And almost in this moment when she asks this, who did this? God damn you. It's almost like she is speaking for every mother who has ever lost a child. It feels that universal to me of any woman who has lost the way that she has lost. Her voice is every mother's voice. Her grief is every mother's grief. And then holding the earth not knowing if anybody hears her, if any entity hears her, if there is anything there because she feels so alone. Who did this? It's her first outburst of emotion. She's had to be stoic, calm, perhaps resigned, even numb. And she had to be in order to take care of her children. But now two of them are dead and she'll most likely be dead soon. And so will Brad. You feel the anger 
in her. You feel the fury at what has happened and the inability to understand it because there is no understanding it. There is no making sense of it or of the tragic and horrible things that happen to us, the suffering we endure. We must never be resigned to to it. We must never be resigned to preventable tragic death. And if you think about it, the nuclear stuff was preventable. It didn't need to happen. We must never accept it. She doesn't want to accept it. This is the moment when she's fighting back against it. When she's saying, I don't accept this death. I don't accept this. Why have my children been taken from me. And there's an Edna St. Vincent Millay poem that's mentioned in the original short story by Carol Amen. And I felt this poem in this moment. Since it was in the original short story, I thought it would be interesting to read it in relation to this scene because I feel a resistance to death in this scene that the mother has during this breakdown. She does not approve of these deaths. She's angry about it. She doesn't want it to be happening. So I wanted to read that poem. So the poem that's quoted in the original short story is called Dirge Without Music. And it's by Edna St. Vincent Millay, as I said. And so I think it fits this scene really well. And y'all know I love to read some poems to you. And um, I don't know if I even do a good job at it, but I really like reading poetry. <laughs> I remember when I was in school, sometimes I would get chosen to read stuff out loud. I don't know if any of you remember when you were like in English class, like in middle school or something. And sometimes you would read a book in class and like the teacher would go around the room and everybody would be chosen to read like a different paragraph. But sometimes I got chosen to read more than that. I don't know, maybe they liked my voice or the way that I read something. And I would get chosen to read a little bit more out loud. And it always kind of made me feel special to like read something out loud. I can't explain it to you. English, of course, was always my favorite class. So this is Dirge Without Music. I am not resigned to the shutting away of loving hearts in the hard ground. So it is, and so it will be, for so it has been, time out of mind. Into the darkness they go, the wise and the lovely. Crowned with lilies and with laurel they go, but I am not resigned. Lovers and thinkers, into the earth with you. Be one with the dull, the indiscriminate dust, a fragment of what you felt, of what you knew, a formula, a phrase remains, but the best is lost. The answers quick and keen, the honest look, the laughter, the love, they are gone, they are gone to feed the roses. Elegant and curled is the blossom, fragrant is the blossom, I know but I do not approve. More precious was the light in your eyes than all the roses in the world. Down, down, down into the darkness of the grave gently they go, the beautiful, the tender, the kind. Quietly they go, the intelligent, the witty, the brave. I know, but I do not approve, and I am not resigned. I think that's a good poem. To me, it speaks to not accepting the death of the young, the death of people who should not be gone before their time, the people who should be there and should still be alive. That's what that poem says to me. My father died young at only 45. The children in this film die young, one in their teens, one only like five years old. 
and it's unacceptable and you don't want it to be real and you don't approve of it and you're not resigned to it. I'll always be angry about it to some extent and I feel the anger of the mother and of course I can't help but think of all the people mourning those they loved during this pandemic. How do they even mourn? Some people can't hold funerals. I mean, it's just, and then they're having to go online and hear people say it's a hoax, say it's not real. I mean, I can't imagine the pain that some of these families are, all of these families are going through. There is going to be so much grief in this country. And I wonder, will there even be a space for it? Will there be a space for these people? Will there be a space for them to talk about the people that they loved and the people who were lost to this and the government response that exacerbated it and made it worse? I just don't know. I don't know what's going to happen if there's going to be a space for those people. Grief is going to be with our country for a long time, for a lot of people. So as the mother is yelling, you know, is holding the earth, is down on her knees, a man comes along while she's doing this. And at first I didn't know who it was. I thought maybe it could be the priest. It looked a little bit like him, but he looked so different that I couldn't tell. He's not in a priest outfit. They embrace each other and they start to passionately kiss. And I think desire, sexual desire sometimes can be a way to connect to life and it can be life affirming to feel that inside yourself, to feel it in your body. And I like that they take refuge in each other's arms, their bodies becoming one. They are both drowning and trying to save each other in the act of kissing. It's like a gasp for breath. That's the way I see this scene and see these two people, these two people grabbing at each other, just trying to live, just trying to feel something. Human touch is their way of connecting and offering comfort. We need touch. We need to touch and to be touched. We need the arms of another. We need to be held. We need that. And it's something that I long for in my own life that I don't necessarily have and that's very absent for me. And so when I saw that scene, I just, I felt like a longing inside myself, to be honest, of like, I wish I had that. I wish I had somebody's arms around me. I wish I had somebody to just take me into their arms and hold me, show me affection and tenderness and to touch me. And I long for that. And I just felt that in that scene. I thought it was very powerful the way that they find comfort in each other through desire and through the body. Like the thing is, is that their bodies have been put through so much pain and suffering, the pain of starvation, the pain of radiation poisoning, their bodies are slowly deteriorating. This is a moment in which they can feel some kind of pleasure. They can feel that sexual pleasure and their bodies can feel something besides just the suffering and the pain. Their bodies can feel this pleasure with each other and feel good with each other. I think that's a really beautiful thing personally. And so later on, the mother, Brad, her oldest son and Hiroshi, they go into the garage and they turn the car on and they're going to commit suicide. But 
she can't go through with it. So instead they go inside and I think it's Brad's birthday. That's That was my interpretation of it. She finds these candles. I think she puts a candle on crackers. I think they were crackers with peanut butter or something. He asks her what he should wish for. And she says that they'll remember the good and the awful. And she goes into a speech about how they'll keep going. It's a hopeful ending. And I'm still kind of uncertain how I feel about it or if I think that it's true to this particular story. And the ending was something that I also had an issue with when I first watched the film in January of 2019. It was something that I wrote in my notes that I wasn't sure how I felt about such a hopeful ending. I personally think that it probably should have ended in the garage with the three of them. I think that maybe would have been a truer ending, like truer to the story or the characters. But I can also see how a more hopeful ending, maybe some people need that hopeful ending. Hell, maybe we need it now. Maybe we need to see something hopeful like that. Maybe we need that light in the dark. And there's a literal light with the the candles. And Lynn Lippman talked about the ending in an interview. And she said, quote, I actually love when a movie continues after it's over. And by keeping them alive, the movie continues after it's over. You walk out wondering if they're going to die. And you have the fight with yourself. You know they're going to die. And you hope they don't die. So that's more powerful. Unquote. And reading that quote, I can see her point that by leaving them alive, it's a more ambiguous ending. It's a more open-ended ending. It maybe goes into your imagination more where you wonder what did happen to them. And maybe it's better to not know how they died. I mean, if you end it in the garage, then you know exactly how they died. They took their lives. They made that choice to leave. Maybe it is more powerful that it ends with them alive. And it's certainly more hopeful, I think. Like I said, maybe maybe we need that hope. Maybe I need that hope right now at a very difficult time in the world's history. I mean, we need to have hope. We need to believe that everything is not lost. That things can get better at some point. I mean, I don't know if I believe that every day. But I do have days where I feel some hope. It just depends on what day it is. Even in this year that has been so horrible, I have to keep going. I have to keep surviving. I have to keep believing. And maybe the only way you really do that is by having some kind of hope. I'm uncertain how I feel about the ending. To me, I don't know. I mean, now as I'm talking about it, I'm not even sure how I feel if I dislike it as much as I thought that I did. Because I get what she's saying, that when you end the film, they're still alive. And so they stay alive in your mind. Their story continues. The film continues even after it ends. And as you think about them... And maybe they do keep going and maybe they do keep surviving longer than we think they will. And that's what the mother is telling the son. Maybe that's an important message. Maybe I'm not giving it the credit that I should. And maybe it's too bleak to have them die in the garage now that I think about it. Maybe it's like as relentless as this film is and sad and heartbreaking maybe we need that ending where they don't die because if it if it ends with them in the garage then it's just almost too much 
It's almost too much death. We've already seen Scotty die, Mary Liz die, just about everybody in the film, the the father is dead. Everybody's died and so maybe by the end we need these three people to be alive and we need them to stay alive and we need them to keep surviving and to keep going on. Like maybe we need that as a viewer. I'm talking about it as a viewer and maybe that that hope that it ends with is actually very important. Hope is almost like this flame and we need it to keep burning. We don't want it to go out because if it goes out, then we only have complete darkness and we only have the abyss. And how do you live with that? As I'm talking in this moment, maybe the ending is growing on me and I was really against it. I was like, I don't like how hopeful this is, but my God, what? What does that say about me? I'm like, oh, I don't like a hopeful ending. What is wrong with me? (laughs) Why would I not like a hopeful ending? I need to get it together. I need to, (laughs) I need to not be so negative, right? And dark. We need hope. And maybe the suicide is not truthful to those characters. I don't know if I believe that the mother would do that. I don't know if I believe that she would kill herself with the children. I'm not sure. I don't know if that's true to that character. And I think by staying alive, it sends a different message. And she still has Brad. And maybe she would still want to spend every moment with him that she possibly could. I don't know if she would, if she would take that way out. I don't know if that would be true to that character, actually. So maybe the ending is what it should be. And maybe it is truer to the character of the mother, that she would keep going and she would keep surviving. And Roger Ebert said this about the final scene, and he was also writing about Jane Alexander and her performance. So he said, he wrote, quote, In the midst of this devastation, Jane Alexander, as the mother, tries to preserve love and decency. She stands by her children, watches as they grow in response to the challenge, cherishes them as she sees all her dreams for them disappear. It is a great performance, the heart of the film. In fact, Alexander's performance makes the film possible to watch without unbearable heartbreak because she is brave and decent in the face of the horror. And the last scene in which she expresses such small optimism as is still possible is one of the most powerful movie scenes. I've ever seen, unquote. Now that's a pretty big compliment coming from Roger Ebert, who watched thousands and thousands of films. For him to say that that final scene is one of the most powerful movie scenes he's ever witnessed, I think that's saying a lot. And I think that by by reading Lynn Littman's quote and reading Roger Ebert's writing, I think I've changed my mind actually about this final scene just in talking about it. Sometimes my thoughts change about a film as I talk about it and I go in thinking one thing and then as I'm hashing it out in an episode, my thoughts about it just change and I think it is a powerful scene. I do. And I do think that in the midst of this pandemic, in the midst of a very difficult political situation in this country right now, we need something hopeful like this. We need this message of hope, this message of optimism, the way that Roger Ebert saw it. Even if it's not justified, even if it's not rational, but maybe it's what I need. And maybe it's something I need to hold on to is the light in the dark 
and the hope. And I need that hope for my own life too. Like I, I've had a hard day where I just felt really overwhelmed today by everything. And I just felt like so defeated and so like, how am I going to do all this? How am I going to change my life? How am I going to be better? How am I going to like get myself together, get my life together, love myself and create a life that I want to have a life that I feel like I deserve. I don't know. Like it just feels so daunting. It feels massive. It feels overwhelming to try to do all of this stuff. And I just have to take small steps. I think maybe I need that hope just personally. And I think when it comes to grief too, you need that hope that you can find a way to live with the loss in some way and or do something with the loss or like I know my dad's death destroyed me I didn't know if I would ever come back from it or if I would ever recover from it and I still feel like I don't know if I can I don't know if I can heal I don't know if I can find peace but it's been 14 years and I'm just so tired of the pain I'm so tired of hurting I'm so tired of struggling I'm so tired of being in this pain all the time I don't know what the next steps are. I don't know. I don't know if I can heal. I don't know. I'm just being honest with you that I don't know. But I know that every day I wake up, I'm trying so hard. I'm trying so hard to just keep going, keep surviving and living. I'm trying really hard despite what I'm going through and what I've been through and the damage that has been done. Maybe I need that message of hope more than I thought I did that. There is a light and it's there. You have to keep going. And that's what this mother does. She keeps going because she has something precious to live for, doesn't she? That's her son. That's Brad. They still have each other. They are still together. Now, would I understand suicide if she was completely alone and Brad was gone too? Yeah. I think, yeah, if she was by herself, she would commit suicide, but she's not. She still has Brad. She still has her son. She still has one of her children. And so I think he is the reason that she keeps living. You know, my reason for living and that why I keep going is my mom. She's what keeps me going. At the end of the day, what keeps us going is love. Love is the hope. As long as you have somebody that you love and who loves you, and as long as love is there and love is alive and love is present, That is why you go on. That is why you get up each day. That is why you endure. That is why you get through the suffering is because you have to live for this other person and you have to live for each other. And I feel like that's what me and my mom have done in the years since my dad passed away is that we've really loved uh, each other and lived for each other. It's a very strong and deep love that we have for each other. She is the reason that I'm here. She is the reason that I keep going. And the reason that I just, I get through it all is because she's here and we're together. And I'm grateful for that. And I have to remain grateful and remember that. It's like, no matter what happens, I have her. If I have her, that's all I need. That's everything. That's my life. That love that we have and that bond, that's what helps me survive. That's my hope. (laughs) She's my hope. And I think we just all need that. Like somebody that keeps us alive, you know, keeps us going. And that's why after I finished this film, I went and I hugged her. 
And I said, I love you. Because the film made me feel that. Like the film just reminded me. You have to hold on to what you have. And you have to just cling to it. And you have to just feel so grateful that you have that. And that you have somebody to hold. That you have somebody to love and who loves you. That's the thing is that this film is about death and grief and loss and disaster and nuclear holocaust. But you know what? It's really about love. It is absolutely about love. It is about a mother's love for her children, a child's love for their mother and their father, and the love of a family. That's the heart of this film, is love. I think that's what makes it so powerful. You love this family. You love these parents. You love these children. And when you see them die, you grieve them. When you think about your own family, you think about the people that you love. The heart of this film is love. Wow. I'm going to stop here. I've talked enough, but this film just devastated and wrecked me and ruined me today when I was finishing it up and doing this episode. I know this was heavy. I know this was a lot. I know. But it's like that kind of film where you almost feel like you're going through therapy or some kind of catharsis as you watch it and then talk about it. I've come to a lot of revelations in this episode and just figured some stuff out too. This film is about love. It's the heart of it. I will stop here. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. I'd like to give a big shout out to my wonderful patrons, Travis, Pierce, Amir, Christine, David, Eddie, Jenny, Lane, Haroon, Thomas, Kelsey, Aaron, Tyler, Juan, Teal, JD, Vanessa, Polina, Olivia, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, and Michelle. Thank you all so much for being patrons. You make the podcast possible. Until next time keep watching great films. Bye for now.